Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Misaligned. This week I have James Shotwell on. Before we dig into that conversation, I just want to remind you that you can find all of the Modern Vinyl podcasts over at modern-vinyl.com. There's Misaligned, which you are listening to right now, the Modern Vinyl podcast, the original podcast, Vinyl Crawl, and Pilot Study. All of them are great choices. Definitely recommend checking out Pilot Study, though. That's a fun one if you're a TV buff or even if you're not and you just want to get to know a bit more about the pilot episodes of shows. Maybe they might interest you and you end up wanting to watch the whole series. So definitely check those out. Again, at modern-final.com, there's a little podcast tab right there for you guys to easily get to them. But now we're going to jump into our conversation. James, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Nice early morning for me. Not really. It's 930, so it might be early for some people, but I think this might be the earliest I've recorded a podcast. Oh, Okay. I think my I, I think I have like a seven AM one in there at some point, but I don't remember because it was too early. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know you do a lot of things, so why don't you tell everyone what you currently do just so I don't leave anything out? <laughs> All right. Uh well I'm currently the uh digital marketing coordinator for Holix. I'm actually the only marketing coordinator for Holix, but I have a fancy title that's a little bit longer. <laughs> um, so I'm basically second in command at Holix. And what we do is we help uh, record labels and independent artists all over the world share new and unreleased music without fear of piracy. It's a tool journalists use to access upcoming albums for coverage and people in the industry and management and things like that. And then my non-day job is a film editor for Substream Magazine. Find my writing on there. I do a lot of movie reviews. Sometimes I write about music. I just wrote about Rebecca Black. Obviously, not the most exciting thing in the world. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's a platform where I kind of express my opinions and thoughts on things. And then I have a podcast inside music that I listen to. A lot more people don't listen to it, but that's just the way podcasts work. And uh, yeah, that's that's those are like my big things. And then I have some smaller stuff. I do live appearances. I speak. Yeah, I spoke at South by Southwest this year, and I spoke at Music Biz Conference. I, I kind of travel the country and talk to students and aspiring industry professionals about not losing your mind and soul trying to work in the music industry. <laughs> right. And before we kind of dig in more to that stuff, why don't we go back to kind of where it all started? What really got you into music? And when did you first know that more so the entertainment industry, since you do also write about film, was kind of where you wanted to put your focus into? I It's getting harder to remember a time before I was really into music. It was a big thing in my house growing up. I grew up in like a super conservative Christian household. So most of the music that I knew, my whole world of music until I was like 10 years old or so, was all alternative Christian music bands like DC Talk and the Newsboys and MXPX to a lesser extent and groups kind of of that vein. And then when Blink-182 released Enema of the State in 99, that was like just that was the perfect kind of crossroads moment we had just gotten cable and i just my parents just kind of started letting me get into secular music or regular music for most of the world and uh just the, that song i remember seeing what's my age again have its world video premiere on trl and like that album changed my life and i remember i feel so old saying this but i remember buying it on cassette and that album was an album that came out it was released into stores before it had a parental advisory sticker. So it hit the first like 
I don't know, 10,000 copies shipped without a parental advisory sticker. And then the next round have it. Well, I got a copy on cassette before it had a parental advisory sticker on it. So my parents, the conservative Christians, didn't realize that it was as dirty and profane as it was. And to <laughs> me, to me, it was like, I know that in, in hindsight, it's not filthy. They probably swear like seven times on the entire album. But to me, it was like, oh, my God, I finally had this access to like real music or, you know, some version of music that was different than what I'd already known. And from that point forward, it was pretty much just a, an exercise in seeing how much entertainment I could consume as a human being in a, one lifetime. The answer is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I did, uh, you know, from there I did. Uh, you know, I started to play in some bands. I did a solo acoustic thing for a while. And then when I was 15, I helped open a venue in my hometown. And I booked that until college. I went to college for business. And then I did radio and uh, show promotion. I worked with Victory Records for a while. And eventually I got into writing, which is kind of how I got to where I am today. Right. And you mentioned going to school for music business. I know a lot of people kind of either think that's sort of a joke major or they're not entirely sure what it even means. Because when I was going to Drexel for music industry, I'd be on my flights back to California or to Drexel or what have you. And, you know, if I had some older couple sitting next to me, they all kind of assumed I just went to Drexel for engineering because I guess that's what Drexel's really known for, which I had no clue at the time because I wasn't paying attention to anything remotely <laughs> close to engineering when I was applying to schools. And then I would say, no, I'm here for music industry. And they would just be like, oh, okay, you know, and like not yeah. really know how to react to that because I feel like to most people, it's just another type of business. It's not necessarily a completely separate thing like we know it as. So what do you mm -hmm. think might be some of the benefits of majoring specifically in music business or music industry, whatever the school may call it? You know, it's it's funny that you say that because you're right. It's it's kind of different for everyone. And, and, and what I found from traveling the country is that it's different to every school. I've been to schools where a music business program involves like a recording studio and learning how to work the boards. I've been to schools where, like you said, and my school to an extent was like this, was that, it's, you know, it's kind of a question of whether or not the music business degree is rooted in the school of business or is it considered a, a, like an arts degree, basically, because right. they kind of go two different ways in America. And I don't know that one is necessarily better than the other. What I do know is it's more a matter of how you use that time. Because for me, college was nice, not because of what I learned in classes necessarily, but because it kind of put me in a position where I had some time to figure out what I wanted to do and try a bunch of things. I'm always, I'm a big experimental person for anyone in college or trying to pursue music business. The thing about college is that you can be like, oh, I, I want to be a publicist. And then you can try being a publicist and realize that it's really hard and really soul crushing. And maybe that you don't have the, you don't have the desire to feel that pressure all the time. So you want to maybe do you do management, you want to do venue, you can try everything you want to do. Right. Um, so that, that's kind of been an establishing thing for me. It, with those schools like that's that's why I got to where I was I had enough time that I could start writing about music and kind of built a name for myself but you know I at the same time I feel like what's important for me is I like the I like the schools that treat music business as a business degree because as much as the industry is its own beast and there's a lot of ins and outs you can learn I feel like a lot of that stuff is the kind of thing that is best learned through experience, that trial and error portion. The stuff that people miss when they don't go to college and the stuff that even some people in college miss is that business stuff. Because like my school in Michigan, Ferris State University is one of the top music business schools. 
But to be honest with you, a lot of the business courses taught me how to run a factory. Like Business 499 right. <laughs> was, was, a, was a class where you had a fake business with widgets and you worked with in small groups to try to have the most successful widget company. And that widget company like made some tiny part that was for like cars or something. And you know, you were working with millions of parts and things like that. But at the end of the day, you learn the ins and outs of how a business works. And I think it's something that a lot of people who want to work in the music industry uh, kind of forget along the way. And I'm guilty of it too. You kind of get caught up in your fandom. Like, you know, like you want to work in music because you love music. And that's not, that's not how most careers work. You know, like people don't end up being a science teacher because they really love teaching science. They really right. love science or they love connecting with people. It's, it's something else. What draws you to work in music is different. And the thing about that college gives you that other, that going the kind of non-college route doesn't is that, the basic tools, you know, like this is a business and you have to remember that you have to remember how a business functions because it might be a record label or you might run Warped Tour, but at the end of the day, you could also run a Costco because they're, they're businesses and there are shared trades between the two that you kind of have to learn in order to be successful. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned, you know, the more business aspect of it, because at Drexel, right as I got there at the time, they had three different routes you could take basically you could do the tech track which meant you wanted to you know be a producer record music and that sort of thing work in a studio basically you could do the business track or you could do a pre-law track if you wanted to go into like entertainment law and that sort of thing but one of the main professors for the pre-law track left so then by my sophomore year, we were left with just business and tech and I went the business route. And no matter which of the two you pick, you have a business administration minor built in at Drexel. So that's something that's helpful, even if you're doing the tech side, because then say you open up your own studio or something, you know how to handle a business and we took accounting classes and that sort of thing. Mind you, our accounting class was like a four-hour night class and was miserable, but it's one of those things that really felt necessary. And personally, I ended up also doing a legal studies minor because one of the required classes for the business admin minor was business law. I believe it was like a 201 class or something, and it mostly went over contracts and that sort of thing. So I kind of just kept going in that direction, and I took you know, business law 202, entrepreneurial law. I even took random ones like criminal law and white collar crime just because I needed something to fill up the minor. And I think you're definitely right that taking those actual business classes that don't necessarily have anything to do with music is very helpful. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where, like I said, it's it, people kind of forget that music is a business at the end of the day. And that's usually like the first thing I tell anyone when I go to speak somewhere is it's like, listen, it's still a job at the end of the day. The people that are most successful at this look at it as a job first and, you know, the most awesome possible way to express your fandom second. Yeah. And it is, I mean, it's even, even having your fandom in place, that's still way higher than it ranks for like most careers across the board, (laughs) you know, like, uh, uh, see, like someone that's running the MBTA in Boston, the Public Transit Authority, like they probably didn't grow up being like, I really want to be in charge of buses for my entire life. <laughs> right. They're successful and they might be very happy, but there isn't, they aren't fans of their industry necessarily. Like it's film, music and film, you know, uh, you mentioned kind of in media business in general and like film kind of came up just because I got a little burnout on music and I wanted to explore something else that I was really passionate about. But that's where they kind of meet and they're kind of still separate from the rest of the world is that they're in those arts where 
everyone that works in this industry is a fan of this industry, and that's not really how any other area of business functions. And so right. that's something you have to take into account for both as starting out and like, I need to know the basics. I can't just be the best, the best fan because they're everyone is the biggest fan of somebody in this industry. Um, but you also have to keep that in mind because it helps you with, you know, kind of interpersonal relationships. You know, that's, it's, it's a bonus. It's a bonus in that way where in any room where you're going to be with music professionals, if there's a hundred music professionals in that room, there's a hundred crazy music fans in that room, maybe for different styles. But at the end of the day, you're all working towards the same goal of like being the best fan you could possibly be. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, my first job that I had last year, it was a desk job and it was at this company called Music Reports, which I'm sure the listeners have heard me mention plenty of times before. But what I haven't mentioned is that not necessarily everyone at that job even cared that they were, you know, in the music industry, essentially, even though it was in a much different capacity than you typically think of when you think of music industry jobs. You're like, oh, they're probably doing, you know, marketing, PR, some more of the exciting stuff. But this was literally sitting at a desk, staring at spreadsheets and putting information into a database for eight hours a day. So that's, you know, it's not the glamorous side of the music industry by any means, but it's something that needs to happen because that's how, you know, songwriters and publishers get their royalties for songs and everything. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure, you know, royalties are not a fun thing to deal with at all, ever. (laughs) And I'm sure most entertainment lawyers would probably also agree. (laughs) And so there it felt pretty split, like... A lot of people did have other music projects they were doing outside of the company, like quite a few people were musicians trying to get into songwriting and that sort of thing. And, you know, that stuff you could kind of do anytime. But for me, what my conflict was, I wanted to keep running Hi-Fi Noise, but posting only at night on a website isn't really the best way to go about doing that. And eventually they found out we were using the office Wi-Fi password on personal devices. So then I could not post to the website during my lunch break anymore or my, you know, two 10 minute breaks or whatever that I got. So it kind of started to constrict how much I could do outside of that day job. So ultimately I made the choice to kind of just quit that job at the end of last year. I moved back home in January and I'm kind of giving myself just this year to do what I want and kind of figure out which direction I want to go in. So I'm going on, what is it now, nine, my ninth month without a job. And while it's nice, it's kind of like, okay, well, now how do I go get another job? Because I'm sure, as you know, because you post the Holix job board every, what is it, Sunday, right? Every Sunday, yeah. It's like not a lot of those jobs are necessarily entry-level jobs. And even though I've done quite a few things, they still want to see, you know, like some jobs want two to four years experience in one specific area. And if I've only done like a single three-month internship in that area, it's a little difficult to kind of like really push yourself and seem like you're qualified for that job compared to all of the other people who want the same job. And I'm sure, as you know, especially with music industry jobs, you'll have a ton of people who 
aren't qualified or don't even have any experience in the music industry applying. So it's really easily easy for resumes to kind of get buried because I know I had applied for a job at a PR company that I actually received press releases from for Hi-Fi Noise. So it's like I knew the publicist there, but they had hired a recruiter to look over the resumes. So then I had less of a shot of my resume even getting through because it wasn't the person I knew looking at them, even though I believe she's like the director of publicity now or something like that. So it definitely depends on if you just hit someone at the right time too, whether or not you can get a job. It's true. It's it's a crazy thing because like you said, there are a lot of people that are not in the industry at all and have zero experience that are applying for jobs. And that's kind of the problem with, I think, a lot of job listings is that's like the idea behind the Hawks job board is that the people that read the Hawks blog are at least somewhat driven to actually be invested in their industry careers. And right. a lot of people are still just music fans who think it would be cool to work in the music industry. And no lie, it is pretty cool to work in the music industry. Even in the job that you were describing, I used to, our stage is a pretty... I talk about it all the time on my show. It's the same kind of thing. Except our stage was a failed startup and we lost a lot of money, but it was a company where it was like we were making a platform for social media in the music business. So you're kind of this very loosely tangential and you would have this cross section of like, you know, developers who just needed a job and music fans who were like looking for some way to get their foot in the door because they wanted to be music professionals. They didn't know how. And it was really hard to kind of feel like you were a part of the industry. But that's, I mean, really, that's what most jobs in music are. Like most yeah. jobs in music are, are a job. And so you don't really feel like you're a superstar because you're not. You probably aren't going to be. Um, but in, in terms of the actual job hunt, it is, it is kind of a hard thing because I was just talking to someone about this recently and music is a, like there used to be that music is a business about who you know. And I do think that that's true to an extent, but the people that you know can only help you if they're in a position to influence somebody else. Right. You know what I mean? And like, I know, I know a lot of people at a lot of record labels, but I doubt most of those record labels would, would hire me out the gate. And I've been writing about music for a decade. I have great relationships with those people. We have, we buy drinks for each other when we go out, but at the end of the day, I, you know, it, it, it's such a specific thing that you need in most music jobs. Like the cool thing about someone like you is that you keep yourself open to doing a lot of different things. And most jobs these days require that. Like right. I, I'm the marketing coordinator at Holix, but I also do all of our press. And I do these live appearances and I do our tutorials on the website and I do webinars for us. I do a whole bunch of different things that are kind of loosely tangential to the word marketing. And that's kind of any job that you're going to find at a label or at a music institution of any kind, that's going to be something that they demand and you need that versatility. But at the same time, you also have to have some specialized skill where they're like, oh, that they are the person that can do this thing. And then they can also do a whole bunch of other stuff and establishing yourself as that person that stands out in a heap of heap of applications is next to impossible. It's a, it's, it's very much, 60 to 75% luck in most cases I found, unless you know somebody and they can be like, listen, you know, label X is hire My label is hiring this person. My boss is looking and I know you can do this. I'm going to tell them to hire you and you get in. If it's that easy, it's either that easy or it's a stroke of luck somehow in my experience. Something that I tell students when I go out and I've, you know, I've been working on this book about kind of the basics of the music and getting into the music industry and keeping your head above water with uh, my friend Ashley Abdenauer, who works with PETA and a bunch of other, uh, works with Punk Out and a bunch of other nonprofits in the industry. You know, like the first thing that we tell anybody is like, the reality of the matter is you're not going to be remembered. Like everyone, one of the things that I think attracts people to the entertainment industry is like, when you think about people who who like survived the, survived the history books, the people that we still talk about after they die, 
Like there are a handful of artists that fit that criteria and like half a handful of industry professionals. You right. know what I mean? Like yeah. Phil Spector, we talk about, usually it's because he was like murdered somebody. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. There's, there's some, they do something extreme. So like we, the first thing you have to realize is like, you're not going to be remembered. Secondly, like if you want to be a publicist at a record label that you love, you probably feel that way because like you love the music that they put out and that that label sells hundreds of thousands of records every year if they're fortunate or tens of thousands. So there's probably at least four to 5,000 people that want that job that you want. And that's just in North America, most likely. You know what I mean? It's spread around the world. It's probably 10, 15,000 people. So the competition... That your desire to do something for a label that you love is not necessarily unique. Your perspective on your desire to do it is unique. But there's there are more than enough people to fill every job in the music industry. The problem is that the industry has changed faster than it's been able to kind of grow. So there aren't the boom of the industry and access to music does not match the boom of jobs in music. In fact, it's almost the opposite. The bigger it gets, the less jobs there are. So people are being tasked to do more. And it's just it's just the state of the industry today. I have the belief that we will figure it out and there will be more jobs and people like yourself that have this versatility and experience and stuff, that there'll be more positions for people that fit that criteria because there needs to be. It's that... It's just that music has changed so rapidly in the last 150 years that un, more so than most industries other than maybe tech. And it, we still we just don't know how to do with it. So we're still just scrambling to yeah. figure stuff out. You know what I mean? We're scrambling to figure out streaming eight years after streaming became a thing. We're still debating whether or not we're doing it right. You know what I mean? And it'll probably take five or six more years before we really hammer it out. It's just, it's one of those things that, that his, history is just moving faster than the industry has been able to keep up. And it's really starting to hit, hit ahead, especially with job availability, like the amount of jobs that are available right now versus the need for people who can work very hard and not to mention very long hours right. for very little pay is insane. Um, but I do have faith that it'll figure itself out. The music industry isn't going to go anywhere. It's just going to keep evolving. Yeah, and you really seem to be of the belief that you should branch out and kind of do as many things as you can while you have the time because personally what I've been doing lately is, you know, I have a couple freelance PR clients. I mean, I'm not making big bucks off of that by any means because I'm still, you know, kind of new to doing publicity and that stuff for bands, whether it's those freelance ones or artists on my own label. So, you know, I have that going, the label, the website, and I've started writing for a handful of other websites. Like I'm writing for a Lakers website, a Packers website, a comic book website, because I probably love all of those things almost equally as much as I love music. So it's like, why not go and also write about those things? Like how you said you got burnt out on writing just about music so you went out and started doing film and now you know you're the film editor over at substream so i'm thinking all right well if i can't get paid necessarily writing about music maybe if i do a more focused topic like the packers or the lakers maybe that's something that could pan out because personally i would be very happy if i could just get paid to do freelance writing from home all day, you know. I yeah. think everyone who's ever written has probably had that thought at one point or another. And the hard thing is, you know, getting your writing notice in the first place because with Hi-Fi Noise, it's 
not a huge site. It's not like, you know, I'm writing for alternative press or chorus or, you know, sites that are getting probably millions of views at least a month or week or whatever. So it's kind of like I'm doing it for myself, but I'm also doing it in hopes that it could lead to something else. Well, you know, you the thing that and this is something that I have always had to keep myself in check with but the thing that I know a lot of writers kind of forget especially music writers because we're kind of conditioned more so than almost any other industry of writers other than film obviously uh, is that like our work is is valueless in the digital age like there, there is is not valueless in the good way either in the way right. that like anyone's gonna regurgitate it and there's a couple of factors for that you know there's the glut of writing that's available there's the alarming percentage of so-called writers who copy and paste press releases that make your work look, you know, like they're like you're not doing any work. Right. But what you have to remember and what I have to remember about all the people that are actually out there doing it every day for pennies or less or nothing. I didn't even get started getting paid regularly to write about anything until about a year ago. Right. Um, is the fact that you've already done it. You know what I mean? Like so music didn't so music didn't pan out the way that you thought it would writing wise. However, you have been able to establish yourself as a brand that people recognize, maybe just a small group, but if people recognize your name, people recognize the hi-fi noise blog name. Like you've done it, you've done it. And music is harder to establish any kind of presence in than I would say any other field in the world. So all you have to do now is apply what you've learned here. And yeah, you have to start over if you want to get into sports, you want to get into film. Yeah. You start over with all this knowledge that you didn't have when you started the journey in music. And it's so much easier. Part of the thing I love about film and what has kept me there since I kind of started to explore it is that film is immensely easier to navigate than music. I mean, there's <laughs> there are just as many filmmakers. There are just as many movies being made. There's all the noise and the chaos. And of course, you want to work with Warner Brothers and Sony and Lionsgate, but maybe you don't get there right away. But getting your foot in the door and like getting navigating those waters compared to, you know, getting to know. 10 good music publicists and 10 good record labels is it's so much easier because you're like, Oh, people here actually communicate with one another. And everyone seems to recognize the fact that like, you know, uh, action movie fans have to stick together in order for there to be more action movies. It's right. not a matter of like my version of action is better than yours. It's everyone's working together. The horror community, same way. Everyone realize everyone loves horror. They recognize the mutual love for horror and they support one another's work in a way that doesn't really happen in, in music and does it take a little long is there this there's still the competition but you have the added advantage of like you've done this right. and more than likely somebody that you've worked with in music has or is going to be working in film at some point and there'll be some little bridge there where you're like oh you used to be the publicist for taking back sunday and now you're a publicist who's working on this new independent film well i write about film now so here's your you know foot in the door yeah and you mentioned you know just copying and pasting press releases which I do post a lot of news on my site throughout the day just because I'm one person. I can't fill the site all day with exactly. just content. So I try to, you know, get in album reviews each week. I've been reviewing Mr. Robot each week. I'll do before I was writing for the comic book website, Talking Comics, I was putting up comic book reviews on the website. So even though they were more so review based, it was still original content that was going up and I personally don't copy and paste press releases it might seem that way because I kind of just put the typical information like hey this band released this song their album's out this day here's a pre-order 
you can, you know, listen to the song or watch the music video below. But I've seen sites where they literally copy the entire email, like bio and everything for the band. And I'm just like, you guys have a full staff of people. Like, why are you <laughs> the ones that are, you know, copying and pasting yeah. press releases? Yeah, well, it's it's a thing that it's it's been an increasing problem. I think it's been a problem ever as long as I can remember being in music. And I'm sure it was a problem before I was a part of music. But it's this thing where, you know, unless you're a site that unless you're a site or a, or a writer who has some kind of influence and has developed an audience who is seeking out your writing, in some cases, in a lot of cases, actually, the audience for a band could give a crap less who is writing about their band. They just want the information. So, the, so there's this belief in certain parts of in publicity and marketing that like as long as the word's getting out there like that's good like you know it's like the it's like the old saying any publicity is good publicity so if they're copying pasting the press release well at least they're getting the information right and they're getting the information out there yeah. is that more or less valuable than you or i writing something personal that has the exact same information but it's also kind of littered with you know our voice right that's that's where the debate comes into play and in, in some ways it is, and in some ways it's not, because if all you want is to see a day to remember live, you could give a crap less who tells you when a day to remember is going on tour, you just want the tour dates, which is, but that's the thing that I think you recognize is that the news isn't where you're going to make your, like, no one is making money just writing news posts about music anymore. You have to have, you have to have a, a view on the world that you're sharing with us that is unique from everybody else's. And so that's why you do all that other stuff. And that's the stuff that that's the stuff that you make a career with. Writing news is writing news, which I think is very, very important. All that proof should prove to is going to prove to people in the industry is that you're willing to put in the work, the day-to-day -day grind. Because writing a great editorial or a great review, that's like that's like the part where you get on stage and you perform as a writer. The part where you're in the studio or you're at your in the back of the van writing some song on your acoustic guitar that no one may ever heard, that's like writing news. Like no one's going to know that you put it out there. No one might even see it, but even if right. they do, they're not going to care that you put it out there. That's not the performing part is the editorials and the features and stuff like that. But in order to do that well, you have to do all the meaningless stuff, that seemingly meaningless stuff that people might not see or give a crap about. Yeah, it's like news posts to me seem almost like a necessary evil, not in any way that they're bad because I personally like being able to go to a site and it's like, hey, here's a bunch of songs that came out today and you can kind of go listen to them all in one place. And that's really helpful. And like you mentioned, I don't necessarily always read the entire post or something. I know on Substream with a lot of music posts you guys do, it's like you will take the time to write you know, two to three paragraphs on something, especially if you guys are premiering it at the website. And that's why I really enjoy when Substream has premieres, because even if I'm posting about the same song, I definitely, you know, link to Substream, give you guys that credit. And then if it's a YouTube video or something, I'll still post the video on my site. But Really, I think people sh should be checking out the places that are premiering songs like Substream and doing it right. It's not like you guys are like, okay, we have a song to premiere. Here's just some general information and here's the SoundCloud yeah. stream or whatever. It's like you guys are putting time and effort into these songs and you're taking song premieres for songs that you actually enjoy. 
Yeah, uh, well, that is true. We do uh, sub working at Substream. I've said no more times than I have at any other publication I worked for. And I think the same can be said for Brian as well, because we spent the last six years working side by side in most capacities. But it's you know it, it it's all about the way you think it matters because you know on on the one level, an exclusive of any kind is going to bring in clicks. You know, in, in your mind, there's like there's a few ways you can look at how traffic on the internet works. Exclusives and features are guaranteed to bring in traffic because they come from a because ideally they're coming from a band that has a set of followers that might be familiar with your publication, but they really give a crap about this band. So right. no matter what you write, there's going to be a glut of people that click on the link that never have come to your website before because they care about that artist. Maybe the, and, and for a lot of sites, some some bigger sites that we won't mention by name here, like that's <laughs> all you need. You just need them. You just you're just looking for that click. But if you're in Substream, we try to, Brian and I, having come from under the gun where we had a website that was making a big conglomerate a lot of money and we weren't seeing any money, we kind of come from the school where we're like, we actually have to build an audience. So we have to get big enough for someone to feel like we're worthy of getting, giving us money. So we try to look at every premiere and every every article that goes on the site is kind of a is kind of like someone's coming over to our house and we're putting a record on or we're putting a movie in and then we're talking about it with them. And I kind of take the opinion that if someone sees something that they're gonna that they enjoy reading and maybe they don't even read a lot of stuff, but if they they only visit Substream this one time to see this one premiere from a band that we might not ever cover again. To be completely honest, especially if they're a small band, who knows what's going to happen to them? Right. I want them to see something on that page that makes them go, "Oh, this site isn't. This isn't just like a copy and embedded thing." And maybe that doesn't grab them. In some case, in most cases, it probably doesn't. But for that small percent that does, that's cool. But whether or not you put any value in the chance that that person is going to give a damn and come back, like that's 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 where the business gets kind of tricky. You know, people hate on alternative press, and I poke jokes at them all the time myself. But at the end of the day. If you scrub away, you know, kind of your emotional ties to writing and what what it, writing means to you as a as an author of something, it's it's a numbers game, and they play a numbers game that they play very well, and it works very well for them. That's not to say that they don't have good writing; they've definitely made strides to bring a lot more good writing to them. But their good writing runs along things that's like nineteen gifts that express how we feel about X band getting back together, right. and that's that's that works. You know what I mean? Like we can we can be upset about it as creative people and say like well that's bottom level thinking and i could come up with that in my sleep but it, but it works and and in 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 pure business terms if you can get someone to in you know engage with your product for as little work as those kind of things require then why not do it i understand that thinking you know what i mean like cuz you and i have both had moments where we've poured hours into a feature and then we saw the analytics for it and it's like, oh, 100 people read that ever. Right. I spent four hours on it and 100 people read it. When you know uh, a listicle of reaction gifts has 4,000 shares, you don't even know how many people read the article, but you see yeah. 4,000 shares and you're like, well, crap. Even if that's a 10-time multiplier, that's infinitely more people. And I actually wrote something that mattered. You know what I mean? Like you get... it's a, but it's personal. It's not a business thing. And I think that that's, it's, it's really hard not to get caught up in that. So at Substream, we try to take the approach that like, screw the numbers. If the numbers don't work out well, at least we'll be proud of what we've created. Because I, I, I have to sleep at night knowing what I produced and put out into the world. And to be honest with you, I just, it, it kind of keeps me, it makes me feel very useless and very like a bottom feeder, unnecessary to the greater good of the world. If I'm just kind of regurgitating content or doing that basic level thinking, like I don't, I don't create stuff just so people will go like, 
yeah, that's how I feel, or that's what I agree. I try to create stuff so that people will feel or think in, about something in a different way. Right. And it's funny that you mentioned, you know, spending all this time on features and being like, oh, only X amount of people looked at it. Because when I started doing Hi-Fi Noise on a more regular basis earlier this year, I did a three-part series. I believe I called it A Brief History of Punk, just because punk music is a genre I really like. And I kind of wanted to just blow through from, you know, kind of the 70s to now on and touch on these bands that kind of hit the scene in big ways and either from the 70s made a lasting impression, you know, like the Ramones, the Clash and those punk bands. And, you know, honestly, I was happy that the first one got like five views the day I posted it because I was like, hey, at least someone is reading this that isn't me. And while I do have, you know, like the Google Analytics dashboard on WordPress and everything, so I see the views every day, it's like, I don't get upset if, say, the site only gets 20 views in one day, because I know things like that, where if it's a day where I just post news, it's like, okay, what am I doing different this day that's making people want to come to my site. And honestly, it's like, well, nothing. You just posted the same songs everyone else posted today. And I'm fine with that. It's more of a, I just want to do it consistently. So like you said, I know I can do this. And it's one of those things where, sure, it's great if, you know, I have reviews and stuff go up and then I'll tag all of the artists when I can if they have Twitter I'll tag them there, and if they retweet it, I can tell which days that happens because it's kind of like the views are higher than usual because, you know, 20, 30 people saw the tweet at least, and they all went to the website and checked out the song or whatever, tour dates, what have you. So it's definitely hit or miss with days where I just have news posts and, you know, days where I have things like album reviews, EP reviews, whatever, and... I try not to let it bother me that, you know, my site's not that popular because I'm not, like I mentioned earlier, doing it f to make money or anything like that. Like, I don't have ads on the website. All I do is I have iTunes and Amazon affiliate links. So it's like, all right, hey, if someone, you know, clicks on my link and buys this, cool, that's a few cents for me or whatever. So it's not like I'm doing this solely to just try and make money off of the same news that everyone else is posting. And I kind of wanted to get into this briefly with you because like you said, you were at Under the Gun and you weren't the one making the money. But before we get there, when did you really start Under the Gun and when did you know you wanted to do that as a publication? Um, Under the Gun launched in March 2008, March, I don't know, like 15th, 2008, something like that. I had been working for another website called High Beam Reviews before that. That's long gone now. I don't even remember. I think someone on Facebook connected me with a guy that owned it. His name's Drew. We're still Facebook friends. And uh, I, that was like my first taste of album review writing. And at one point I learned, and uh, he, he knows that I tell this story, but at one point I learned that High Beam Review, and this is still something that happens regularly today. It was a legitimate website. It had a daily news post and it had album reviews and all that jazz. But what it really was, was a front for a leak group. Okay. So 
Drew and his his other friends, he had a couple of friends who had these websites. And this is back when album promos were sent out as CDs. So basically every album you got, you could just rip and have a copy of. It wasn't like stream only yeah. back then, uh, which makes me feel so old, but it happened so fast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so he and his friends had do this. And I remember when I first started, I went to visit Drew not long. We were at different colleges, uh, both in Michigan. I went to his college the first time and he had like boxes and boxes of CDs that he had gotten for review. So he would email all these labels. He would get a bunch of albums in for reviews. He'd find people who would do the reviews for free, such as myself. He would get the content. And then he would, but in the meantime, he would take all those albums that he got in the mail, upload them, and then pirate them basically. Right, And so he was a part of a group that was making money off of a leak website, off the ads on a leak website that were huge, great returns, hundreds of dollars, thousand dollars a month sometimes. And the site was just kind of an afterthought. Something. So when I, when I kind of put these pieces together, I was still in college at uh, Ferris for music business. And I was like, well, shit, I don't want to be associated with that. So I decided to start my own website almost to kind of save myself from the trouble of you know, becoming, I mean, I don't want to be associated with that because I was like, that's going to ruin my career. Not right. only enough, I work for an anti-piracy company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Seeds were there. The seeds were there. Full circle moment. Um, and then, I don't know, like at first it was just, at first it was very much like, I just want to get my name out there because I felt, I'd read this book by Abby Hoffman called Steal This Book where, and this is only slightly less shitty than what Drew was doing, but basically Steal This Book is a collection of things that Abby Hoffman wrote in the 70s about how to get free things in life. And one of the sections was on vinyl records. And, and his whole idea in it was that back in the day, you would go to Kinko's and you could print up like a mock-up one page of your magazine. Like I could print up the front page of my zine and it would have uh, like four, basically he said, create a mock magazine of one pager and then you'd put it in the mail and you'd mail it to all the record labels and say, look, I have a magazine. You should send me records and people would send you free albums. And I was like, holy crap. I wonder if that would still work today, but with a right. music blog. So I did the same thing. I started a music blog. I emailed everyone and said, hey, look, I'm a, I'm a music writer, which I wasn't. And <laughs> send me records. And sure enough, that worked. And I, I believe it would still work today because everyone's so hungry for exposure that like they're willing to take a chance on people. So... So at first it was just that. It was just like, maybe I can get some free music. And then it was like, maybe I can go to some free concerts. And then I got my friends involved. And then by the end of that first year, I think we were pretty pretty set on like, this is a thing. The whole first year of UTG, it was, only a, it was an album review every single day. And I wrote every single one of them. So I wrote like 365 reviews that first year. And then I kind of, someone that I had become friends with needed me to make a news post about, I think it was even a day to remember, like before For Those Who Have Heart came out. And I was like, okay, yeah, I, I could probably post something about a day I remember. And then it was like, can you post this? And then it became a news thing. And then it was a full-blown website. And before I knew it, it was like, you know, 30 contributors uh, all over the world and insane traffic. And it just kind of exploded on me. Yeah. And I know you covered a lot of Under the Gun over at Jacob Tender's podcast, Varial bit bitrate so i'll link to that so we don't basically do that podcast all over again that's okay <laughs> you guys recently basically shut down under the gun so how does it feel now that that sort of chapter of your life has officially come to an end i know you left the site a while ago and brian was doing a lot of the editing and everything for under the gun but now that it's officially not a site anymore how does that make you feel well there's you know there's a there's a few things to it. the first one I get, I get sad about it on one level it, it's helped me relate to a lot of my heroes in some ways because you know we talk we've mentioned this earlier but the idea that like people get into music because they love a certain kind of music or they love certain bands and you know i'm about to be 29 in 
two months now, Jesus. Um, <laughs> and you know, so I've been trying to work in music since I was about 15. And the bands I loved when I was 15, most of them have broken up at this point. And I've been fortunate enough to interview some of them and some of them I've become friends with. But letting go of Under the Gun, let me see the industry through their eyes because ending a website like Under the Gun, which was literally the only thing that I worked on every day for the better part, or most of my days for the better part for over eight years, was you know, that was, that was my life. And in many ways it was like a band, except I was writing about all the bands and going and traveling and touring and doing all these things to try to build up the website. And when it ended, I, this thing that had become synonymous with who I was, I mean, all of my handles online were UTG James, some of them still are because you can't change them. Right. Uh, you know, this thing that had become synonymous with who I am, like I would be introduced to people at South by Southwest or wherever as like he runs under the gun review. It wasn't even like a music blog. It was people that was a brand bigger than myself. And so to kill something bigger than yourself, so to say, is kind of a weird thing because you don't know if the world, I, it took me a long time to be okay with the idea that maybe there wouldn't be a place for me without under the gun review. Because you think like, okay, well, that's the thing that people care about. They don't care about me. They care about Under the Gun Review because in truth, it, it became something much bigger than me, which all websites should aspire to do. It wasn't, a, it was my idea in the beginning, but by the end, we'd had well over 100 contributors. People that had written for us had gone off to be publicists at big PR firms or work at record labels or write for Pitchfork and Consequence of Sound. And we kind of became, you know, like a farm team for the music industry, people that wanted to do something tangential to writing with UTG and build up a get some exposure with people that they actually wanted to work for and then they would go get paying jobs but the catch-22 to this was while everyone else was coming to UTG getting the exposure needed to get a job at like let's say Pitchfork and then going to Pitchfork I was stuck it under the gun because someone needed to stay behind and steer the, the ship right and so letting go of under the gun gave me the ability to kind of find the next phase of my life I left under the gun in November of 20. 15 and twofold because I, I didn't have time to do it honestly. Brian was doing 99% of the work as editor and running the staff. And I was just kind of the guy that got to take credit for it. And that didn't feel right. To me. So I wanted to leave, give him the ability to take over. But also my boss at Hollux was like running under the gun review, even as much as you are, is a lot. A lot of people thought that like I ran under the gun and then I worked at Hollux on the side when the reverse was true. So I didn't have any plans to be in a power position in writing again. I was like, I can continue writing reviews for Substream and whatever. And then that, but letting go of under the gun review is how I got a job as like a film editor at Substream. Like that right. job kind of came up like a month later. And then Brian is the new editor in chief at Substream. And it's the same thing. Like if I hadn't left under the gun. I wouldn't have gotten the opportunity. And then Jason wouldn't have come to me and been like, we need a new editor. Who's the best editor that you know? And Brian had to come over and then when Brian was getting ready to come over he was like so what do we do with UTG and I was like well we can continue carrying this thing behind us but honestly can you say that there's anything left that this site could do for us as people like it's given us everything it's literally given us both a career and now it's given Brian his dream career in music and I'm pretty happy with where I am too so like what more do we have to gain out of this and it's not in a non-selfish way like what more could we say that the site hasn't said or done before that would really benefit the greater conversation? And when we came up with nothing, we just decided to let it go. Right. And you mentioned, you know, people thought the website was your main job and Holix was your side job. And in reality, it was the other way around. When did the Holix opportunity arise? And how many people actually work for Holix? Is it just two of you or is there more of a 
staff than just you and your boss. Uh, I've been I've been at Holics for three and a half years now, three almost three and a half years. Uh, and I, I always say years because I'm kind of a dreamer. When I worked at our stage, the startup funding was such a problem. Almost immediately after I got the job, funding was like the company would have to lay off employees all the time, and then people would get brought back and laid off again. It was this very tumultuous thing where you didn't know month to month if you were going to get paid, let alone still have a job. Right. So when I got the job at Holix, I was like, if I can keep this job for a year, it would be more stable than the job I've had for the last three years. And now, and so now I tend to look at it as like, if I can make it to next year, I should be good. So three and a half years almost, going for four, hoping for five, working on it that way. Um, to answer your question about the size of the staff, the two people that are manning the things every single day are Matt Brown, founder, CEO, and then myself. I kind of do everything else outside of CEO jobs. But we have dozens of people that we kind of outsource work to. Okay. We have we have people that kind of weigh in on our business decisions. We have accountants. We have uh, freelance developers. So we, we work with a lot of other people in smaller capacities. There's this guy, Adam, that we consider like the third main member of our team. He does a lot of development stuff for us. But the people who wake up every single day, live, eat, and breathe holics is Matt and I. And then there's people who do it slightly less slightly less often. <laughs> right. And you mentioned being in Minneapolis. Did you make that move because that's where Holix is based out of? Yeah, I lived in, so I, I'm from Michigan. That's where I, well, I'm from Ohio originally. Moved to Michigan when I was like nine, right before I turned 10. And I went to college there. And then a year after graduating and working and getting fired from Hot Topic, <laughs> I, uh, I got a job at our stage and I moved, to, I moved to Boston on a whim. And I lived there for three or four years. And then I worked at, and part of that time, I worked at our stage. I worked at Holics. I got that job while our stage was in one of those tumultuous periods. Um, and I kind of did both jobs for a few months and then I dropped our stage and I worked from home full time for Holix until February of this year when we moved to Minneapolis. So that I'd been working 30 hours a week for Holix, but I made enough money that I could kind of justify that as my full time job. Right. Um, not that I'm rolling in the bank at all, but <laughs> I've worked in music long enough to keep my expenses pretty small. Yeah, and I'm sure Minneapolis is much more affordable yeah, than Boston. Way more affordable than Boston, but I got the opportunity to work full time if I moved out here. And we got our, we didn't used to have an office. We have an office now, but when we're not in a crucial period like right now, we're kind of in between major updates and we're just kind of riding the wave, doing some very basic stuff day to day. We don't go into the office every single day. So right now, I'm, I'm like I'm at home right now talking to you from my home office. So yeah, see, not much has changed. <laughs> yeah, my office and my bedroom are one in the same. I put a giant standing desk in here, which oh. it's yeah, it's a little big, but you know I could still get to everything in my room, so it works. I just got like that was my that's been my living situation this entire time up until when we moved here. Like you said, it's a lot cheaper. Like we pay less for rent here and we have an extra bedroom. So right. that extra bedroom became my office. So I like literally today when I go check my mail and we're off this call, I should have some frames because I've just now gotten an office where I can like put my things on the wall that I've collected all this time. So like yeah. I'm still like I'm like, oh yeah, I have like this signed note from this band or this thing that I've always wanted to display, but I've I've just now gotten the space. And I tell you, it's worth the wait. Like when you get there, you're gonna be pretty happy about it. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's funny that you mentioned frames and everything because the other weekend my mom literally helped me hang a bunch of stuff up in my room because I had a lot of my stuff from my apartment in a box still. So I had pretty bare walls here in my bedroom because I had taken that stuff with me to the apartment. And then, 
when I came back, it's just like never got around to hanging stuff back up. So, you know, I have a nice signed yellow card poster that went up. I bought myself a Stranger Things poster. So everything's all good now. Got that yeah, all you settled. Yeah, you like have some personality on the wall. That's an important <laughs> thing. Yeah, definitely. Well, I want to talk about inside music real quick just because you know how can you not talk about podcasts when you're on a podcast and i feel like that's the main thing of yours that we have not mentioned so far and when did you realize you wanted to start a podcast i know i believe today you released episode 90 90 yeah. yeah, so you are a little little more ahead than I am on <laughs> podcasts there. And, you know, you get to interview a lot of artists and bands for this. And I know when it first started, you sort of more so had, you know, friends and colleagues on. So how mm-hmm. did it kind of go from that to what it is now? Well, I, I think of... I like writing about, if it comes to film, I think reviews are what I do best in the world of film. Editorial stuff kind of hit and miss, but music, the thing that I felt like I've always been, like my thing has always been having conversations with people because I kind of pride myself on the idea that I'll ask someone the things that they aren't usually asked. Like that's kind of my goal in every conversation. And I don't know when I necessarily got the podcast bug, but I've been a big podcast fan for years. And I always thought that like the world needed more music podcasts, but I wasn't, I didn't want to be the guy that was like, I'm going to be the music podcast guy. So when I saw a few other people start doing it, I was like, okay, now I can kind of sneak my way in there. I don't have to right. be like defining music podcasts. I can kind of have <laughs> one, have some conversations. And you're right. The first ones were a lot of friends and colleagues, some of them because they had other podcasts and some because I just wanted to talk to those people. But, you know, I had been doing Under the Gun for like eight years and I'd done hundreds of interviews with people, some people multiple times, but I felt like there was a few things that were missing. Like my goal in any interview that I have with anyone and even doing an interview on this side with you is that like, I just want to, I want to have like 30 seconds where I feel like you and I are just talking without there being anything going on. Like, like if we just met on the street and for some reason, we're having one of those real human moments where you're like, holy shit, like we're both just human beings. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's what I'm always looking for in my interviews. So inside music to me, and I didn't feel like there was one of those for music at all, let alone the alternative music industry specifically. Even when I read interviews online, it was always like, you know, why, why did you, you know, write this song? You know, how's tour going? How's, how's recording? It was all the generic 20 questions that we all ask. And there's nothing wrong with those questions. Yeah. But after, eight years of doing them. I wanted to ask something else. (laughs) Um, And so that's where Inside Music came from was like, let's talk about to the people behind the scenes about how they got here. And then when it, it it has transitioned a lot into artists and I would love to do more industry people. The fact of the matter is industry people are way more busy than most musicians are on a day-to-day basis. People have a, they don't have an hour to just talk to me. Whereas, you know, Brian Garris from Knocked Loose, who was just on the show, his van was broken down in South Dakota. He had all damn day to talk to <laughs> Right. Like, like, you know, they just, their schedules tend to be a little bit more open. And yes, it helps with traffic a little bit, but I mean, the idea behind Inside Music, I wanted it to be an educational show for the music industry, for people that wanted to work in the music industry. And I think sometimes we do that really well. But what people, I think what people expect when you tell them that it's an educational show is that I'm going to get on and talk to people and be like, so how did you do it? How did you become the guy who's known for this thing? And I, and I try to do that to an extent. But what I mean by educational on, in my show is in, in the sense of being like, I want to show you that everybody is just another person who really loves music. And the reason that they got here is because they expressed themselves and their love of music in some way that was maybe just slightly different than everybody else. But it was a way that was unique enough to stand out. And whether they're 
the girls in baby metal, which is our most popular episode of the podcast, or they're like I said, Brian Garris from Knock Loose. Like they're just a person like you or I. And at the end of the day, we're all just kind of working towards the same goal of like finding a way to kind of capture that intangible, indescribable, wonderful thing that music is and hold on to it for a little bit longer. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned just sitting and having these kind of conversations with people. And I feel like there are quite a few podcasts like, you know, the Nerdist podcast, WTF with Mark Marin, where I won't necessarily listen to those podcasts if I don't know who the guest is. But I feel mm -hmm. like with a podcast like yours and even a hundred words or less, which is Ray Harkin's podcast, I'll listen even if I'm not super familiar with the guest, just because I know that no matter who you two are talking to, it's definitely going to bring about an interesting part of a conversation at any given moment. And, you know, like you said, not everyone has an hour to talk or something. So, you know, like your episode that went up today, it's what, around half an hour? Yeah, I think we had like 25 minutes to talk. Yeah. And <laughs> I've done episodes that are the same, you know, when I do the interview episodes like this every other week. I've had some bands where it's like I talk to them for 30 minutes and at sometimes I feel like it's a struggle almost to talk to some bands longer just because, you know, maybe their publicist hit me up and I'm not super familiar with the band. So it's like, you know, I'll ask them admittedly some of these generic questions and then it's just kind of like all right well i don't know too much about you guys so where do we go from here and that's definitely been a learning experience but then i've had you know other podcasts like when i had jason tate on and it was the longest podcast episode we've had so far because it was i believe like an hour and 45 minutes after i got done with editing and everything and i was like wow we talked for like two hours and I didn't even realize it because the time sort of just flew by because we had so much in common that it's a lot easier to get those conversations going. And, you know, especially this one with you, it's like, all right, we have these similar things we've done that we can talk about. And, you know, you and I could probably go on all day just about those things. Yeah, no. And that's the thing. And, and, and the other catch to that is that when you find yourself in those conversations where you're like, and you can tell really fast. I can usually tell within the first five minutes of a podcast, like if we're going to find that stride where it's like, okay, now we'll just kind of cruise on this conversation. Right. Because it's about, because to me, you know, that moments come when you, even if you've prepared questions and I don't always, I don't always prepare questions. Admittedly, you kind of hit a point where it's like, well, none of this matters. Like we'll get there if we get there, but we're kind of talking about something and you can tell the other person is interested in what you're discussing. And like, they just want to talk to you about that. Like, that's the point. The thing is that I have found, that's why, not not this recent episode of Cheap Girls. That was just a matter of like he didn't know that we were doing a doing a podcast, so he didn't really have that kind of time to talk to me. Right. But sometimes, and you can tell if you listen to every episode of Inside Music, I get to a point pretty much five ten minutes in where I realize it's not going to go very far, and so I try to get out by thirty minutes. I'm like, I have a I have a minimum of like twenty to thirty minutes is like the shortest podcast I'm comfortable with doing because I I feel like at least at that point we've talked about something that isn't the basics. Yeah. Um. But I, uh, there's been a three or four times where I'm committed to running the episode because it's an artist that, you know, the publicist is expecting me to run the episode and I just have to bail out at 30, bail out at 20 minutes and be like, thanks for your time. You know, this was a good interview. It's not the kind of interview that we typically do, but 
you know, you still got to, you still, you have those things. I will say that there is one artist who I won't name that is uh, 18 years old and is in a rock band that did an episode of Inside Music that will probably never run. It was like 25 minutes long. And it was just, it was just so many times I said the word like, and it was, I just felt like I was talking to another, <laughs> I just used it. Uh, I just felt, I felt as if I was talking to almost like another species of person where you're just like, oh, we aren't like at all on the same page. Like we are, <laughs> we live two very different realities and not in a way that it's interesting to either one of us to listen to the other person, but almost like, I can't believe that we're stuck having this conversation. So there are, there, there have, there's one, there's at least one lost episode of the show. And two, coincidentally, the publicist has never once asked me what happened to that conversation. <laughs> I just knew that maybe it was a wild ball or like a wild card. And when it, when it didn't show up, they were like, well, there must be a good reason. You know, you can just hope that you have the kind of reputation where they'll just let let it slide. They'll trust your instincts. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I woke up this morning or when I was going to bed last night, I realized, oh, crap, I saw Bayside last week and I was supposed to write a show review and I have not done that. And here it is a week later. So it's like basically mm. as soon as we're done with this podcast, that is what I'm going <laughs> to be doing because I did I did take notes on my phone at least. So I just forgot because I'm so used to publicists asking me something like three or four times, you know, you'll get those emails where it's like, can you post this? Can you post this? Can you post this? And it's like, uh, sure, <laughs> at some point. And I was like, oh, yeah, I have to do that because I haven't heard from her. And she's probably like, well, she's never getting invited to a show again, <laughs> you know, or that yeah. sort of thing. So well, let me let me ask you real quick. Mm -hmm. when, when it comes to your live reviews, um, when you, you mentioned taking notes, I do the same thing. Okay, I have a little thing on my phone where I'll write little notes to myself. But um, how do you how do you approach this? This is like you'd be surprised how often when I go speak to places, someone asks me how you write a live review because I feel like most people it's a it's a term that people throw around where they're like oh, I'll just go review the show. But it's so do you do you try to take it very technically where you're like it was good, the sound was good, the band did this, blah blah blah, or do you write more of like a, an experience piece where it's like you're your view as you experience this concert i would say i definitely do a mix of the two like in the opening paragraph let's say i'll kind of do okay these bands played this one went first this one went second whatever you know give the general information that people want for shows and you know so with this Bayside show, it's like Sorority Noise opened and played 45 minutes. Menzingers played probably an hour and then Bayside went about an hour and a half. So I feel like those are things people always want to know, especially people who are going to later dates of a show. Mm -hmm. And I try to just give them an idea of what the show is going to be like when you go. Like the Bayside show, it wasn't sold out, but it wasn't, you know, a half empty room either. And I felt like it was still a good crowd and that even though it wasn't, you know, a packed house, it can still be a great concert despite that, you know, just because something as simple as it was on a Tuesday night, you know, it wasn't one of those Friday night, Saturday night shows where more people are going to be willing to go to them because it's the weekend, especially with, you know, school just starting back up. You know, maybe some teenagers who wanted to go have parents who don't let them go to concerts during the week and that sort of thing. So I try to just give them an idea of what the concert is going to be like, what you can expect, you know, highlight a few of the songs that are going to be played, even though you can go to like Setlist FM and f find a full set list, basically. And I try to just highlight a few of those songs, you know, 
this song really got the crowd going and that sort of thing. And sound being good is definitely something that needs to be noted in a review, if you're me, because if you go to a show and it's sold out, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good show. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. I know. I was just curious. I, I like reading different versions of it. I, <clears throat> I'm always curious what, what captures someone's imagination. In life. I don't write a ton of live reviews, but when I do, yeah. it's, it's usually it's, I, I try to speak from like, a. it's always like my personal experience. So like, I think the last one that I wrote that I enjoyed at least, no, I wrote one about going to a, a rock festival not that long ago, but it ends up being kind of, it's a reflection of who I am as a concert goer, almost more than it is a reflection of the show itself. Like I have comments about the show and I talk about like things about the two stages, how far apart they were. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like how much of a smart ass can I be in 700 words <laughs> right. without, without making it all about myself. But ultimately I find that most live, the best live reviews are the ones that tell you how they made the author feel. Cause that's what I'm interested in. Like I want to go, I go to, I go to anything, movies, music, film, film and movies are the same thing uh any kind of any kind of live entertainment or entertainment at all i go because i want to have an experience that i've never experienced before and so when i read the live review i'm looking to find out if there was an experience there or if four bands played and there's a very big difference right and on that note i have a quick question for you when you go to advanced screenings of movies and that sort of thing how do you take notes? Because, you know, no one wants to be the person with their phone out and lighting up their face watching a movie. So how do you find <laughs> taking notes for a movie when you have to do a review for it? Because, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like, all right, you know, pretty much most of the people in this room are going to be writing a review. So does it not bother you then that, you know, people might be on their phones taking notes and that sort of thing? Or do you try to write in the dark? You're like, I've always kind of just wondered this about film critics because I'm like, do the same rules apply when you just go to a regular movie? <laughs> well, there are, well, there are two, there are a few different kinds, but there are two main kinds of film screenings. And one is a, as a public film screen that has press at it, which is where like they give away a 500 tickets to fill a theater. And then there's right. two rows where the press can sit. And then there are private press screenings, which tend to happen in the mornings, like a, like a movie, like a Woody Allen's cafe society, which is kind of a smaller movie that isn't going to make $50 million on its opening weekend. That will, I'll watch that at like 10 AM in the morning at a theater here in Minneapolis where there are at most six other people in the theater. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we're all critics thing is, is that at both those screenings, uh, especially the public ones, they actually have these really cool pieces of tech that they have security on hand at all the screenings. And they have these really cool pieces of tech that are basically night vision goggles that are meant to detect any kind of screen. So you actually can't have your phones out at all. And in public screenings here in Minneapolis, they actually have people at the door that make you show them your phone shut off before you can go inside. Okay. So there's none of that, but I uh, I have a couple of them. I have a couple of movie notebooks, and I bring a pen, and it's it's hard. It's a, it's a science. Like one, learning to write in the dark is impossible. But it, you you learn to write in the dark as the movie. Hopefully, it's a bright movie. Horror movies, you're just screwed. Like it's gonna be dark, <laughs> right? Yeah, and you're gonna have to write scribbles to yourself. Second is being able to read your scribbles. But, you know, there's this crazy thing that happens when, you know, typing versus writing. If you write something, you, you're more likely to remember it. So sometimes I take notes in the dark knowing that I probably won't be able to read what I wrote. Right. But it's the idea that, like, I've committed the thought to memory in a way that somehow, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I know that you have a pages when these podcasts go live. I can actually, I'll send you, I'll send you one or two before Thursday that you can use. But I actually keep all my notebooks of movie notes 
So I'll send you what one looks like, but it's basically my chicken scratch. Sometimes my words run over <laughs> each other. But if it's a movie that's like uh, something that I either really love or really hate, the amount of notes I write is pretty small, but I write very glaring, big messages to myself. So like uh, I'm trying to think of something that I've really detested recently that I took notes for. Um, most summer movies. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Uh, but like Suicide Squad, that's a movie that I would take notes at and about halfway through taking what I would say are very in-depth notes. Like I make notes about like song cues and actors and plots. I just write in the middle like, oh my God, this sucks so bad. <laughs> I'm relying it a dozen times. So it's my notes kind of work as a, as a run of conscious. Now, I know some critics that don't take notes at all. I, I like having them because I see, I watch so many movies and sometimes I don't write the review the same day right. or I also have to go to a concert or I have to do one, I have to do a podcast with somebody. So I have to do a lot of other things where I have to be, attempt to be entertained and soak in what I'm, and soak in and kind of break down what it is I'm experiencing. So taking notes kind of just helps me at least have some idea of what I'm going to write when I get to my reviews. Awesome. I wish they would do that at all movie theaters where they would make you show your phone to people <laughs> because... Oh yeah, I'm... I'm I'm bad about telling people. To, I'll just I'll just tell people. I yeah. have no cons. Like uh, my wife, Lisa, she hates it because it always embarrasses her. And sometimes she's <laughs> right. my ass kicked. But my defense is like, what are they gonna do? Really? I mean, I understand that we live in a world where terrible things have happened in movie theaters. Yes. But none of them have ever been like someone told someone to shut their phone off, and so then they got shot in the face like that. Right. Knock on wood, hasn't happened yet. Um. Like the worst thing that's ever happened is like, I remember we saw something and there were three teenagers behind us who were talking through the entire thing. And at one point I just, I literally was just like, I had to tell them to shut the hell up. Like, and I, I have no, I have no filter for my language and I, <laughs> I try not to talk poorly. I write a lot more profane than I tend to speak. But in this one case, it was under my skin that I was like, can you just shut the F up? And I just like got in their face about it. And I turned back around and the rest of like the next hour, these kids were like, oh yeah, hot shot. You're a little jerky. Why don't you just, you want to take this outside? And I literally had to be like, no, I'm in a movie. I want to stay here and watch this damn movie. <laughs> right. And that's, that's why I'm asking you to shut up. So like, that's, that's like the worst I've been in, but in, in, in critic screenings, like I'm not the only one. So being in Boston, everyone knows Boston people have a bad attitude or at least we have. <laughs> I like, like I'm from Michigan, but I always say that I'm like my, I'm emotionally from Boston because I have a very short, short trigger for a lot of things. But I, I've been sitting in like sold out movie theaters, 300 people watching a movie an hour and a half in some normal bystander from the public, just some guy trying to see a movie for free. in one of the first five rows pulls out his phone to look at the time an hour and a half in. And I've heard a critic from the last row of the theater just yell out, put it away. <laughs> like talk right. in a packed room there's a silence that falls over the room because we live in this crazy world where anything can happen and for a few seconds people are like oh crap is it gonna go down right now yeah. usually people just put their phones it's a thing but i'm the same way like i i things get thanks to working from home i can go like if i want to see a new movie on friday i can go at like 11 30 in the morning and there's nobody there but myself right. uh i i try to avoid seven o'clock screenings on the weekends like the plague yeah, I think when The Force Awakens came out, I saw it at 8 or 8.30 in the morning. And, you know, because I was living up in Van Nuys and I'm sure 99% of my friends were not awake that early, I just went by myself. Like, I have no problem with going to movies by myself, especially if it's something I want to see in either, you know, my friends currently are working or in grad school or what have you, and they're way busier than I am. I don't mind doing that. and. 
what's your opinion on, you know, you go to see this big movie that's come out and you have people cheering and clapping during the movie. I just want to get this from your perspective, since you are a film critic, critic, does that sort of bother you? Because then there's something you could miss while everyone's clapping or making noise or what have you. Well, I think it's, it's always depends. I mean, there are films where I feel like it's, it's justified or it's, it's kind of things that like you should applaud because it's like what they've just done is amazing. Right. Like not, not necessarily the character on screen, but even the technical achievement of what you've just seen is like, it's so like, okay, force awakens is the great thing. Uh, so there was a, there was a critic screening for it in Boston, like a day before the movie came out. So I got to see it in a room that was like 25 people that I knew were going to shut the hell up and watch a movie for two right. and a half hours. But as soon as that music started, there was a round of applause and a room full of critics who, most people believe hate everything but like in that (laughs) moment all of us were like it's like when you it's like when you go to a brand new concert and they finally play something off deja entendu and you feel the entire (laughs) room go oh my god like this is what we came here for film critics they're like music critics we're all out there because at some point we heard an album or we saw a movie that we were like this changed my life why art can change someone's life i'm gonna go out there and help people find art that's gonna change their life so in moments like that, you kind of get reminded of the fact that like, oh, yeah, we're all here because we're all just dumb music. Like, we're all just dumb movie nerds. We watch more than everybody else. But like, we're all here because at some point we saw Star Wars and we were like, oh, my God, I want to do nothing but watch Star Wars for the rest of my life. And most things aren't Star Wars. So when you see Star Wars, you're like, yes, this is this is what I came here for. And there's that, that excitement's fine. What I hate is what I hate is people who are not having a good time in a movie or they think something is a, a joke. This happens a lot in horror movies. Right. Um, they think something is dumb or below them in some way. So the only way that they express themselves and their discomfort with the fact that they've wasted 90 minutes of their life or wasted $13 is to like mock what's happening on screen. That drives me crazy because I feel like a movie is no different than a live performance of something and that you should give respect to the person who created it. And applauding them or cheering them on for things you like is great, but I feel like you should hold your, you should hold any criticisms that you want to cast on the film until it's over. You should give, give the artist a chance to fully express themselves and then have your opinion, but to ruin the artistic expression just because it makes you uncomfortable or unhappy in some way up front, that's just kind of a dick move. And like everyone else in that room paid money or gave up of their time or both. And you should have respect for your fellow man in that way. Yeah. And I definitely agree that with something like Star Wars, which is really the only movie I think where I've had it happen because I saw it earlier, early enough, like opening weekend for people to still be extremely excited about it. And it was a completely sold out theater. So, you know, people clapping all at the same time makes sense. But to me, what I find annoying when I go to the movie theater is, you know, like you mentioned with that group of teenagers that you had to tell them to shut up. I believe it was when I went to go see Age of Ultron, there was a group of teenagers, either the row behind me or two rows behind me, and they were just saying all of these things about either the characters or the movie in general that were just completely wrong, and it was driving me crazy, but you know, I was by myself, so I didn't really feel like saying anything to them because there were like, I don't know, five or six of them. And I was like, I don't want to deal with them sort of thing. And to me, it's like, okay, if you're going to talk the entire movie and give commentary that is completely wrong, just please don't do it. 
No, exactly. And, and it, there are times where, you know, something that I feel like a lot of writers in both film and music sometimes forget when you're in a place that there's also a lot of non-industry people or just like general, when you're with the general public is like, what you do every week multiple times is something most people do a handful of times a year. Like most people go to the movies less than 10 times a year, even today. Right. And most people go to less than 10 concerts a year. You know what I mean? So for, for people like you or I, where that's like, uh, you know, I, I've reviewed almost a hundred movies this year, not to mention the ones that I've, you know, haven't reviewed that I've just watched. So like I, I can get a little numb to things, but like I saw Sully last week, the Tom Hanks plane movie. Right. And we all know that story. Like we know that the plane lands, they all get off the plane. But in that moment in the theater, when that plane hit the water and spoiler alert, everyone was fine. They <laughs> applauded the room full of people. I was with like some people applauded and cheered and they were like, woo, that's great. And I was like, you realize that it's make believe and it's make believe something that you already know happened. Right. You know? Um, but, but you know, I, for the people that don't go to the movies every time of year, there's a there's a lot of invested value in what you're doing. Like there's invested expectations where you you go in being like, I spent thirteen dollars on this Tom Hanks movie. I'm gonna have a good time. So I feel like they 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 tend to have almost an overreaction to things that might just be good or great because they feel like, you know, this is this is what they're getting out of this. This is what their money was for is to experience this and hopefully have a good time in some way, shape, or form. And so when they get that little bit of good, they're gonna celebrate it because it's like, okay, I didn't waste my money this week. Yeah, definitely. And admittedly, I'm really bad at seeing movies when they come out. Like I mentioned, I think last year, I really only saw that I can recall The Force Awakens right away, opening weekend. And then I went, I believe I saw Age of Ultron and Pitch Perfect 2, like, well after they had already been out. So the I think when I saw Pitch Perfect 2, there were maybe three other people in the theater with me. And it was fantastic, to be honest, because I didn't have to worry about, you know, people yelling things out in the middle of the movie or that sort of thing. And, you know, this year, I don't even remember what I've seen this year. I saw Deadpool, did not go see Suicide Squad, did not go see Batman versus Superman in theaters. And I think it's okay that I did not see either of those in theaters, to be honest. But you're right. <laughs> it's just, you know, going to the movies for me sometimes isn't as pleasant as just sitting on your couch watching a movie either by yourself or, you know, have a friend over or something and watch it. Because at least when I'm home, one, I know I can make popcorn for much cheaper than you would buy it at a movie theater. And I know that if there is some sort of distraction, I can just pause the movie, deal with it, and then get right back to the movie and have some peace and quiet. I kind of feel the same way about concerts. I used to go to 100 shows a year. Yeah. Uh, and now I've been to, like, I don't know, a small handful this year. But I'm, I'm content with that because, uh, you know, movies and music, it's kind of the same thing with experience. It's a lot easier to be way into going to the movies a dozen times a month if you're young and you haven't seen a billion movies, but the more right. movies you see or the more concerts you experience, the value of the live experience and by live and movies, I mean, going to the theater is, is it's diminished. Cause you're like, Oh, well, that's just like, you can do that all the time. Cause you know, for a part of your life, you're like, Oh my God, a concert's happening. This is like uh, this is a definitive moment in my young life. But then at one point you realize, Oh, there are hundreds of concerts in hundreds of cities every single day of the week. And this moment is no, 
more special than any of those moments. And I could just, I don't need it. I don't necessarily need it. I can enjoy this album and the, this band and the songs I like from the comfort of my couch and my vinyl collection. And I don't have to stand for four hours or buy $9 beers. It's a lot easier to just stay home. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, when I went to go see Deadpool, that's when, you know, that thought kind of really hit me because I saw, I believe it was a couple of people, they walked in with like, a twin set of strollers and I was like seriously you are bringing your small children to Deadpool and you're just going to park the scooter the stroller you know right in the walkway <laughs> and I'm just like oh come on people you couldn't get a babysitter for like three hours yeah no those are the worst someone brought a kid I saw I saw when the bow breaks this weekend I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh um african-american thrillers for lack of a better genre description you know what i mean jilted lovers it's always like four black actors (laughs) and and all those movies are mediocre yet amazing in their own way but there's someone brought an infant a toddler to the theater that was dancing and running around the this is 7 p.m on friday night and like it never once did it seem to dawn on this person that maybe it wasn't the right movie for their child i think that's a i think that's that's a whole another conversation about the internet age and how people feel like just because everything is available all the time that everything is okay for everyone. And that's right. not, that's not true, <laughs> yeah. but it's almost like the music industry, like to bring this full circle. But the big problem with the music industry, as we discussed, is that it, it's changed faster than the business of music has been able to adapt. And I think our viewing habits as a culture are the same way out of, out of nowhere, we've been given access to everything. And as a result, there's there's a lot less filtering because we just don't know how to how to do it with so much content. Right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up for today. This actually is going to end up being one of our longer podcast episodes, because like I mentioned, when you're talking to someone you <laughs> have a lot in common with, it just flies by. But I will plug you that's why you for you. Back. <laughs> yes, I will plug <laughs> you for you right now. Definitely go check out Inside Music Pod. And if you are someone who has a small label or something, even though I myself have yet to do this, go check out Holix. I know personally when I get things from other competitors, I guess you could say like play MPE, I'm just like, why couldn't you use Holix and make my life easier? You know, <laughs> So Holix is definitely a great resource if you plan on doing publicity of any kind with any musicians. I think I am going to have to go get myself that trial soon so I can get some freelance PR stuff done. Well, I, I do want to say, I do want to say, I, I hope people listen to Inside Music. You don't have to, obviously, <laughs> but if you do, I, uh, everyone, like the thing with podcasts, I feel like is um, every episode is different. You don't need to listen to the last episode of Inside Music to like this one, but I do feel like uh, there are certain episodes that are better first episodes for people than other ones. So like the Cheap Girls one, it's kind of short. It doesn't give you a full feel, but if you go back Let's say four weeks, I think I had Ben Leach from You, Me, and Everyone We Know on. It's Ben Leach Returns is the name of the episode because it's the second time on the show. And it's kind of a, we deconstruct the end of You, Me, and Everyone We Know and why that is a good thing and a bad thing in varying ways. Right. Uh, but I think that's that's an episode that like when it, when it was done recording, I'm sure you have these moments too. When I was done, I was like, that's what I want to do every week. Like yeah. this is the show that I'm trying to make. And I actually made it a few times. And in 90 episodes, I've probably done it like seven times that are, I was like, yes nailed it but that's the most recent example of like this is what the show is meant to be every time and sometimes we get there sometimes we don't but uh that's that's a good one where we talk about like life and death and getting older and 
drug addictions and all that good fun stuff. Yeah, that was definitely a great episode to listen to because I actually did get to see the band, thankfully, before they broke up and no longer existed. So, you know, it was kind of nice getting to know the reasoning behind that and everything. But definitely, James, thank you for coming on today. We will definitely have to have you back on in the future. I know you well, now you have to come to you inside music. So. Yes. When I am very free as of late, as you probably figured out. <laughs> as I've, I've just learned now, so now I know that you're available. Yes. I, I keep telling anyone I know who has a music podcast or even a non-music podcast, I'm like, I'm free. If you need a last minute guest, I'm here. <laughs> I never really have anything to do. I do the same thing. I actually have a lot to do, but I just like doing podcasts. I'm always like, let me come on your show. As someone, I have a friend that's starting a basketball one and like, I am not the basketball guy, but I was like, I can learn. Oh, oh, are you talking can- about Jack Appleby? Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah. I, I can, I, I know basketball enough. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I've been doing not only this, but sports up, which, you know, that's kind of been less consistent than this one because sports are a funny thing. And it's like, you know, you can do a sports podcast and you're like, all right, we got 10 listens today. That's good because there's so many sports podcasts. I can't even count how many there are. I feel like there are so many more sports podcasts than every other topic, practically. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to see how different sports podcasts really focus on one aspect or another, you know, if they focus just on one sport or a bunch of sports like what MJ and I were doing. So I'm definitely interested in seeing what Jack has in store. Yeah, and I'll throw this out. I don't know what Jack's podcast. I know it's probably about basketball, but I I would love to be the co-host on a podcast, not the host, but the co-host on a podcast that I haven't seen yet for sports. It's just an idiot's guide to blank, and it, and there could be multiple versions of this show. But right. <laughs> I have an idea that like like I love basketball, but I love basketball as like a guy who played a little bit in high school and plays NBA two K seventeen. And when it comes <laughs> to like all of the players and all of the all of that is just gobbledygook in my mind. Right. So I would love a podcast where every week we just talk about where I ask all of my questions to somebody who's very knowledgeable. And together with the listeners, I learn about why I should give a damn about basketball. I think that that would be a great sports podcast. So anyone out there that's thinking about starting a podcast, that's good. You do the same thing with music. Have <laughs> yeah. someone on interested in being a fan of music and let them be the audience and just let them ask you sim- seemingly simple questions about the thing that you love and help a whole generation of people find that, find that passion. Yeah, it's funny. I actually did an episode like that on Sports Up. I had my friend Michael Rodino on. He's a huge hockey fan. And I basically asked him like all of my stupid questions I have about hockey. I'm like, okay, what what does this mean? What what is this? Why do you do this? Is there offsides? Like, you know, I asked him like yeah, questions yeah. like that. And it it was a pretty funny episode. And I definitely see where you're coming from with that. But before we go, do you have anything you want to recommend to our listeners? Anything you think they should check out? Music, film, whatever? Oh, man, you give me an opportunity here. Well, <laughs> I uh, one more shameless plug. Starting in October, my wife and I have a movie podcast coming. It's called Shelf Space. And then uh, we own about 120 DVDs and Blu-rays. And then every episode, we're going to go in alphabetical order and we're going to talk about every movie we own. And at the end of the episode, we're going to decide whether, why we, why we own it and whether or not we should keep owning it. And things we don't have, we're going to give away what, what we don't, things we aren't going to keep, we're going to give away. 
And uh, basically, it's going to be a podcast about why we buy physical products and nice. what, if any, value they have over over a long period of time. Because I'm sure, like vinyl, we own a lot of movies and a lot of records that we never really listen to. So it's like, why do we have them? Right. So this podcast, we're going to force ourselves to enjoy everything that we've bought and figure out why the hell we spent our money on it. So that's coming in October. <laughs> that's funny. I should send you a picture of the DVD collection my parents have acquired because they never really made the switch to Blu-ray. Like we still just have a regular DVD player because they stopped buying movies a lot right around the time Blu-ray started becoming a big thing. But I would say we have almost two bookshelves full of DVDs in the hallway. So I'll definitely have to shoot you a picture and see how the how the two collections compare there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of what, that's one of the things I hope I love seeing home video collections because they look like libraries but with very very tiny spines. <laughs> yeah. Um so okay, so recommendation things. Uh okay, I got a couple of quick ones. Um my my favorite album that is not yet released in 2016 is the new Shovels and Rope album, and that comes out the first week of October. And I think that I don't know if they even have a label. I think they may be putting it independently. But Shovels and Rope is this husband and wife Americana folk rock group, and they're they're my, one of my favorite bands in the world. And their album is absolutely spectacular. It might be my favorite album of the year. Uh, and then for movies. Movies is a lot tougher, but something that just came out on VOD that's still kind of out there in the world is Morris from America. It's about a young uh, black kid from Brooklyn who moves to Germany to live with his dad after his mom dies. And he kind of, it's kind of a coming-of-age story set in Germany with a, an American, uh, American teenager. And it's kind of a cool – he has a love of hip-hop and it ties in music, and I'm doing a terrible job of selling you on it, but it's really <laughs> worth your time. And for horror fans, because everyone knows that I'm a big guy, a big, big fan of horror, if you haven't seen Don't Breathe, see Don't Breathe, watch Hush. Uh, I see Blair Witch tomorrow. We're recording on Tuesday. I see it tomorrow, so I haven't seen that yet. Um, but I hear really great things. And uh, yeah, I don't have a TV recommendation because I've honestly been on this weird kick where I'm watching a lot of 90s sitcoms that like <laughs> you can only find on DVD. So unless you really haven't, if you haven't seen news radio yet, like go find news radio. But uh, yeah, those are my recommendations. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. And to our listeners, as always, thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yes. Have fun, people.